Hi, I'm Hazel from Papyrus. For Hopecast this month, we've been talking to Angela Samata. Angela's sister Helen also joined us for this conversation, which took place late in November. Angela is a fellow of Liverpool John Moores University and the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust. She's an arts professional and is also part of the Speakers Collective. Angela lost her husband Mark to suicide in 2003. She explored the impact of this loss in the BAFTA-nominated BBC documentary Life After Suicide, which she presented. It's a powerful documentary and we would really recommend that you watch this. In Life After Suicide, Angela talks about the importance of food and the family meals that took place in the wake of Mark's loss. So we thought it would be good to join the two sisters for an afternoon of cooking, baking and talking at Angela's house in Liverpool. Just one quick disclaimer before we start. There's lots going on in this kitchen, so you'll hear some clanging and timers beeping throughout. You also might hear some bells ringing during the episode, as if Santa himself is on the way. But it's actually Angela's two cats, Clive and Cleo, coming in to investigate the cooking. That's enough from me for now. Welcome to Papyrus Hopecast. into your home and today we are sitting in your lovely kitchen. Thanks for asking us, it's just, it, this is actually the first time that we've we've done a piece together actually, a piece of work together. A double so, act. So it's <laughs> definitely not the first time we've been a double act but it's the first time we've done a, <laughs> done a podcast together. <laughs> We're sitting in the kitchen today um, which is lovely and warm so can you just tell me what are your favourite things to cook and do you have any self-care foods? Well, my um, self-care food is sourdough. So I only started making sourdough about a year ago. It's a year Mm. in January. And the reason I started making it was that looking back, I think at the end of last year, I was probably really close to burning out and didn't realise it. Um, I think it was when I realised like the sight of my diary was starting to make me feel quite sick. Um, I thought, okay, maybe it's time to do something about this. Mm-hmm. So it was actually my brother-in-law who came to stay with us uh, from Copenhagen who showed me how to make a sourdough starter and bought me a book and said, um, I know you're not going to do anything with this, but I think you probably should. And um, it was him kind of publicly... Uh, mocking me on Twitter for not having made any bread yet that made me make my first loaf of sourdough. And <laughs> Nothing like a bit of humiliation. <laughs> <in> the <family>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, publicly berating yeah. me for not making any bread, and um, and I thought actually I do need to you know kind of do something else and and look after myself and stop you know going on stage or mm. on camera and saying oh yeah this is how I look after myself mm. when actually I wasn't looking after myself. Mm. So definitely sourdough for me. It's a very methodical way of... There's, there's a method and a Absolutely. prescriptive way of doing exactly everything yeah. and measure everything. Yeah. So it's probably quite calming, isn't it? You have and to have just, a clear And there's just something about that um, repetitive movement that, you know, when you're kneading the bread, actually having, you know, doing that and having flour on your hands and not being able to answer your phone and not being mm-hmm. able to write an email or take mm-hmm. a call or whatever... Um, there's just something that means that you are just absorbed in, in what zone. you're doing. You're just completely in the zone. Yeah. And also, timing's really important. So, um, 
yeah it definitely worked for me so it's kind of taken me on this journey over the past year where I've been finding out how to make sourdough okay very interesting and Helen what's your self-care food definitely cakes definitely cakes so I um kind of stumbled across making cakes by accident really um I thought you know it can't be that hard how wrong I was many (laughs) (laughs) science (laughs) yeah Uh, many failed uh lemon drizzle loaves it was at first um I I started out with and um that was about 16 years ago and I've baked ever since then so I will bake my way through anything I'll bake my way through nerves anticipation anything like that really and Um, also the morning after you had had a baby when we came out to your house to to see the baby after you come out of hospital you also greeted us with a fresh batch yeah. of fairy cakes out of the was it, was it scones or fairy cakes that we polite visitors <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah it's definitely um definitely baking cakes for me i couldn't bake a loaf if i tried but no. give me give me cakes any day what's a fabulous combination though two sisters yeah. one do does well, bread, one does cake don't come near great. us if you're trying to give up carbohydrates because yeah, we exactly, are the carbohydrate yeah. queens <laughs> <laughs> but for me it's the same it's um it's i didn't realize when i i started baking cakes that it was sort of my mindfulness and it's kind mm. of what brings me back to the the here and now mm. and I can't really you know I can't focus on on anything else mm. really other than yeah. weighing and measuring and, and mm. mixing the ingredients so the word that springs to mind is like it's very therapeutic so it is like yeah, therapy for both both of you yeah, isn't it absolutely, absolutely. and you both have um, Greek heritage so mm. tell us a little bit more about this and and how much that's influenced what you cook and what you eat and how it, you behave it, in the it, kitchen really it's influenced what we cook but more importantly it's influenced how much we cook because <laughs> you will never leave a Greek restaurant hungry you'll mm. never leave a Greek home hungry and it's exactly the same so I think we've because we're 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 Greek um we're Greek Cypriot and Italian so that combination together is kind of means that all of our houses kind of run on food and um it's the kind of go-to things if things are really good if we're celebrating or if things are really bad then we just turn to it anyway so celebrate (laughs) and commiserate with food but there's always lots of it Mm -hmm. men's everything (laughs) and it kind of it's um it's just something that we've grown up with. So mm. we were taken out to restaurants from a really mm. young age. So we've always kind of been around food mm. and it's always been, um, you know, a, a, it wasn't just special occasions that we sat down at the table. It's mm. always been something that's been big in our house, you know, Sunday so dinner. So it's been more than significant. It's been like a focal point, hasn't it, for yeah. all of you? Yeah. 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 That's very important. So, very controversially, mm-hmm. which one of you is the best cook? It depends what you want. Oh, if you want, want bread. bread. <laughs> yeah. If you want bread, it's definitely Angela. If you want cakes, it's but So, do you have bread and cake at every big family meal, then? It's kind of expected now, <laughs> to be much. honest. Can we come for dinner then, please? It's like, you're always welcome. Yeah. You're always welcome. <laughs> so going on to a slightly different subject now, Angela. So tell us a little bit about your life and art and you know, mm. what's been the standout moments and uh, I've had loads of amazing things happen in the art world and I've been very lucky and it always felt like a privilege to go to work because my, my last big job was um working at the Walker Art Gallery, running mm. the John Moore's painting prize and that 
was just an amazing thing to mm-hmm. be able to do. And we had, you know, 3,000 artists a yeah. year entering the prize. And so you would really get the chance to see mm-hmm. where British painting was at, you know, because you had to have done the, the painting in the last kind of two years or since the last prize. So we would get a real sense of the... Yeah, really taking the temperature, really, of, of British painting. And and I've had loads of amazing moments. You know, I've worked with lots of brilliant people, you know, um, Tracy Emin, Peter Blake, you know, all the, all, all the big ones, really. And it's been a, an incredible privilege mm. and continues to be so. I'm still working in the art world now. And mm. it's, for me, it's really important that I, I spend half my time working in, mm. you know, suicide prevention, suicide bereavement, but, you know, kind of mental health, world but that I'm really conscious that I always try and keep the balance of um, art and and, Mm. and mental health and I suppose you didn't choose to be in the world of suicide prevention because I don't think anybody does but you did choose Mm. to be in the world of art it's been a passion I I did but the two things have always run Mm. parallel for me and increasingly now they cross over Mm. you know with social prescribing and Mm. and um, mental health and well-being Mm. through the arts Mm. and and so for me things are really or kind of quite often now, more often than not, crossing crossing the two mm. worlds. But when when um, Mark ended his life, I'd only been working at the Lady Lever Art Gallery for three weeks at that point. So wow. the past sixteen years for me, the the two things have They've been run parallel. parallel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what? Um, who, which artists have uh, had an impact on you? Which ones would you recommend? It's really difficult if for me to say, say that yeah. because. Um, it depends on how I'm feeling or what I want so you know it depends on you know I I work with an amazing sculptor um, called Emma Rogers and her work is absolutely brilliant you know it's just this beautiful uh, dynamic work and and she did the um, you know she did some of the the work that you see in the Guardians Mm -hmm. of the Galaxy film and and she's an amazing person to work with I found her completely inspirational you know Mm -hmm. she can just create a figure there and then in front of you and it's like how did that lump of clay just turn into that figure in it it, yeah Yeah. and and it's an amazing thing to watch and I I suppose that um yeah it depends on where I'm at what I want to look at I will always kind of go to a Rothko if if Mm -hmm. I can uh, but but one of my uh, biggest passions in it is an artist called Agnes Martin who um, was uh, an, an abstract expressionist and uh, she's an incredible artist and actually had a, a diagnosis of schizophrenia and um, but she never talked about her schizophrenia in, in her lifetime and she had a big uh, she, she died in, in 2012 and she had a big retrospective in Tate mm-hmm. a couple of years ago so that it was great to see that, for, that work mm-hmm. um, as well Oh, that's very interesting. And did that did that come to life more for you? Because when you saw that, you actually knew about schizophrenia because mm. nobody knew about it when she was alive. I presume. Yeah, well, well, not people didn't talk about mm. it. They didn't talk about the fact that she um, was a lesbian and she mm. was schizophrenic. More to be subjects, though. More to be mm. subjects, and and again for me, it was once I knew those essential things about her it it just meant that I could look at her work in a different way Mm -hmm. and then it was great because in the catalogue um, they touch on those subjects the exhibition catalogue and and again it was something that kind of hadn't she hadn't felt able to talk about in Mm -hmm. her own lifetime because of the stigma Mm -hmm. Um, so it was great to 
to be amongst mm-hmm. her work. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very interesting. And just on another another string to your bow, um, in 2017 you won the, a Churchill Fellowship. So I did. Can you tell yeah, us a little bit more about what that means and what do, what are the Churchill Fellowships? So the Churchill really? Fellowships are a, a range of travel scholarships actually that are given every year and they're given across 10 categories everything from science to arts to education um and 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 what they are is a is a publicly funded scholarship originally public funded um that wanted to continue like Churchill's kind of educational aims really which was to go away into the world and bring the best of the knowledge back to um back to the UK and and so it could benefit uh audiences here um so I went away and I I was I was given one and what I asked uh, I asked if I could look at um outsider art which is um artworks that are made by people who are usually untrained and may have a a mental or a physical health challenge Um, so I went to New York for three weeks, Chicago for a week, San Francisco for a week, and uh, Japan for three weeks. I know you feel sorry for me, don't you? But someone, oh, someone had to do it. <laughs> and I went into lots of um, psychiatric units, lots of daycare facilities, lots of art galleries, museums. I spoke to curators and artists and uh, art dealers, um, and I looked at. Uh, several different areas um, to do with this type of of art and um, it was phenomenal so I'm just writing the report now Mm -hmm. I know it's a year over date Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's a year over date we'll give you that yeah well we look forward to hearing more about that so 10 years after you lost Mark to suicide you made the BAFTA nominated documentary Mm. Life After Suicide yeah can you tell us a little bit about um where you were when you started that docu- documentary, and you've, you've mentioned before we started this that it once you made the decision, it happened quite quickly. Yeah. But part of the journey that you've been on since making that, because that threw everything into the, the public. It did. Yeah. It, it was funny because oh, there's the oh, bread. Bread's ready. Marvelous. There's the bread. Hang on. Let me take the next bit of the process. When the, when the BBC came to me, it was the, the end of 2014, and um, they asked if I would be involved in it, and then that involvement grew to kind of presenting it, which I'd never presented anything before, so I'd kind of spent quite a lot of my time putting other people in front of the camera. Mm. And it was a big decision to say yes to it. It was a decision that we had to say yes as a family. It wasn't so you did it round the table with a big meal, I would imagine. We did. Yeah, it was one of those things where we we had to say a very, very quick, for lots of other reasons, but we had to say a very quick yes or no. And I suppose from my point of view, at that point, I'd already spent 12 years working in, in this area. And, and I kind of felt as if... You know, who am I to say no? I, I've I've spent twelve years mm. trying to get people to talk openly about being bereaved by suicide, and now I'm being asked to put our story, you know, the people's stories on on BBC One, and that was really really scary. But I almost felt that I had a that I should say yes to it mm-hmm. because it, it felt like it was it was the public 
discussion that wasn't happening mm. at the time. So it was a case of coming back to everybody here and, and seeing whether they thought it was a good idea as well. But the difficulty was, I suppose, was that the kids were involved yeah. and you know, we'd always supported everything that Angela had done in supporting other people and encouraging that, that open and honest conversation. Um, but when we were asked to, to be on screen as well, it kind of, yeah. it you know, it changed it, mm. didn't it? It changed it, it stopped being just mm. about kind of Angela. And she'd always been really careful about kind of what the boys were involved with. And, and you know, we'd always very much supported what she did, but this mm. time we were kind of involved in the film. Yeah. And as well. your, so girl, your girls are younger than Angela's boys, yeah. aren't they? So do they yeah. remember? They don't remember they, they were they, they, they weren't, they weren't, no. So that's really hard because you've got to explain it to your girls and you're yeah. talking about somebody that they don't really know. Yeah, and, and you know, they've always known about Mark and when they were old enough to ask about how he died, we explained to them you know what had happened um but really it was it was it was tricky wasn't it because yeah. we had to get it we had to get it right and we had to yeah. get it right for for Angela's children and for mine yeah maybe. I thought that was a very poignant part in the film when you were talking to to Ben yeah about the questions he asked you when he was little yeah but I loved the way that he went <laughs> okay Move on. Because yeah. he always used he to ask to he always used yeah. to ask me things twice or three times or four times or you know, when he, he was three years old when his dad um died and so for Ben, he didn't know what tomorrow was. He didn't know what you know, somebody not coming back today, not coming back tomorrow, not coming back in a week's time or a year's time or whatever. And he didn't really understand the permanency of mm-hmm. what had happened. So he would often ask the same question and I suppose I was thinking there was some deep, um, at the end of the film, you know, where I said to Ben, you know, he, he says, you know, I hope you don't mind me. I'm, I always ask questions several times and, and I say, well, yeah, that's fine. But why do you do that? Thinking there was some psychological kind of reason, you know, that, you know, you need this reinforcement. Um, but actually in the film, he just gives a really honest answer and says, well, sometimes I forget what the answer was. Yeah, you know, so boy, it's kind of yeah. like, again, I think sometimes we load things with the psychological aspect that we all have because we work in this area but actually sometimes it's really simple yeah. like I just couldn't remember what you said yeah. you know so you're my mother and I blank you out a lot of the time I would imagine yeah absolutely um, but, uh, but but I think the other, the other thing was as well we were aware that when you make a piece of television um, it was 58 minutes of television that is always going to be there and so I was really really aware that Helen's girls were really small when we made that film I was really aware that my kids were, you know, 15 and 25 and they lost their dad at 3 and 13. Mm. So for my kids, it was... We were just aware, weren't we, that mm. actually we were taking a snapshot of their life, but actually it was something that was going to exist forever. Mm. So we just had to make sure it was right. And mm. I think it was when we, we Leo, the director, came up and met people. And, and, and so once we'd met Leo, we, we knew that we could trust him and we knew mm. that you know because mm-hmm. there's always that fear that you give somebody your lived experience and then they can do whatever they want yeah. with it in the edit yes of course. <clears throat> so there was a, a lot of worry mm-hmm. and concern around that but once we'd met the director and we, we knew that they were people mm-hmm. that we, we we could trust mm-hmm. and, and we liked which mm-hmm. which is really really important but also we had to consider that we became really protective of Mark and we yeah. mm-hmm. were always conscious that actually <clears throat> he very quickly um, you know, his life became 
how he died that that one night yeah. that he died and how he died and not at all about how he lived and mm-hmm. we never wanted Angela or our family or Angela's children to be defined by how Mark died no. you know and and all of those years ago it was still really it was still a, a, a big stigma attached wasn't it yeah. to, to somebody oh, who huge. had ended their own life mm-hmm. so we were conscious about that when we when we made the film when as we well. said yeah yeah. So what's so what's the journey been like since the film came out for you, but also for you, for you, Helen, and for your boys, mm. Angela, and the girls, and everybody? What mm. what's been the result of that, and how has that affected them, or do they just carry on? No, it, 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 I think the thing is that because it was first shown on BBC One in 2015, <clears throat> and and that was fine, and we did that, and we knew it was going to come out, and you know that 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 was okay. Did you all watch it together? We didn't. We, we didn't. watched it in separate houses. Oh, okay. And at that time, I actually didn't have a television because I adopted out of television about right. a decade earlier. Mm-hmm. So actually, I had to go to my mum's to watch it, which was hilarious. <laughs> so I watched it, I watched it with Ben. You watched it behind your hands in your own house. Okay. It's um, a cup of tea now. And so we 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 did we did that, but but I think the thing was that. You know, when when you lose someone to suicide, it's a very public death. Everybody wants to know why. Everyone wants to know how. Everyone wants to know why you didn't see it coming, or if you did see it coming, why you couldn't stop it. Or you know, everybody's got all of these questions. And I think when you make the decision to then put that experience on BBC One, it's a huge jump. Um, and that, for me, was part of my decision making was just thinking about the implications of that. Um, I think with television the way it is now you have the ability to have an impact on lots on, on, on lots of people for a longer period of time so once it was shown on BBC One of course then it went on iPlayer mm-hmm. and it stayed on iPlayer for 30 days or whatever and what that meant was there were lots of people who were all watching it at the same time the first time it went out but then for that whole month there was a lot of people watching it throughout the month so there was a real influx of people mm. writing the most amazing letters mm. and tweeting and and just interacting with us as a family and as a yeah. you know as the film um for a long time and then since then it's been shown on BBC One um, about five or six times across all of the different regions and things so again each time it's shown it's wonderful because lots of people discover it for the first time Mm -hmm. and unfortunately there's lots of people who've also been bereaved in the same way Mm -hmm. since the film was first made who then discover it for the first time but you know this is why it's a big it's a big deal to say yes to something like this because you're not just saying yes to yes you can show the worst time in my life on BBC One this one time it has a longevity that television never used to have before so I think that was part of my thinking when we said yes we weren't just saying yes to this one showing (laughs) you know we were saying yes to creating something Mm -hmm. that we had no idea what the impact of Mm -hmm. it was going to be and it was it was a big decision but um you're very happy with the outcome I suppose yeah absolutely who that film has reached since then and yeah. the lives that it must have touched and the people Absolutely. that will have got some help from it from I, I think when, when we decided to say yes the, the same truth that was there then is absolutely still the same and I think I can speak to it for everybody who's, who was involved in the film both before, behind and in front of the camera and that is we all went into it thinking if this helps one person mm-hmm. if this helps another person who's widowed at 32 you know I was 32 mm-hmm. when this happened 
um, if it helps one person then that's the reason why we're doing this. And it makes it worthwhile. I think that's something yeah. that we all say, papyrus, you know, just, if we can just save one life, then, that's it. then it's worth us being around. And if you it? stay yeah. focused on that one, mm. then that's okay. Mm. If you're doing it saying, oh, well, I'm only going to do this if it, if it gets a million viewers, then that's the wrong reason to say mm. yes to yes, something, absolutely. isn't it? So the bread is ready. The bread is ready. The bread Fantastic. Is ready. We'll have our cup of tea. <laughs> I'm kind of chewed into that noise of the, um, of the cooking now. I can hear it all over the house whenever it goes I've spent years trying to fight against, you know, that kind of man up and it being a selfish act and all of that and it's something that I feel very strongly mm. that people don't see suicide as, as a self a selfish act anymore in fact most of the people I've spoken to who who have um, thought about ending their lives you know it's usually <clears throat> you know they say uh, everyone will be better off without mm. me you know mm. it's that kind of thinking not not being you know selfish mm. and wanting to hurt people no. It's very much the opposite. So I think the film gave people that space to to just think about their own situations mm-hmm. and just to reflect, mm-hmm. you know, you know, on that. Mm-hmm. It also gave people the opportunity to think about how their opinions and attitudes towards suicide and the the questions that the, they asked us as a family when Mark died. It kind of changed their perspective on that as well and the impact that 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 has and the questions that that people have for you, you know, mm-hmm. when they realise the impact of somebody's yeah. suicide on a family and they're asking you how, why, when, mm. you know, all of those things, it's, um, mm-hmm. that, that was another big, mm-hmm. big impact. Mm-hmm. I think because we made it and it was 12 years after Mark had died, I thought that was, <clears throat> you know, really good because it gave... It gave a different perspective. This yes. wasn't twelve days after all. Or no, but but then in gave the film, you meet people like Rebecca. Absolutely, who... I was just going to um, come on to Rebecca, who's mm. you know one of the members of the suicide bereavement um, support group, which is run by Sobs Charity. Mm-hmm. Um, she'd only lost her husband five weeks before, and she mentions experiencing guilt and anger. She was obviously still in in shock, yeah. wasn't she? I mean, um, so so what what can you tell us about? about the whole grief journey particularly mm. I mean grief's horrendous for anybody to go through but particularly if you if you're experiencing it because mm. of a suicide mm. I think I think when when we speak to Rebecca in 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 the film I was really quite um worried mm. that you know editorially how how can you make a decision yes somebody had signed a, a you know a kind of a form to say that we could use their their interview and Rebecca had signed that consent form but I still felt, as, as somebody who had also been widowed, I felt like four weeks in, five weeks in, I couldn't remember what I'd said. And again, there was a real, I felt a real responsibility to mm-hmm. Rebecca mm-hmm. Um, to think about where I was at at that point in time. And would I want something that I'd said five weeks after being bereaved by suicide to then be part of this, mm-hmm. this film? And uh, we went back, you know, in, in, in the film, I actually go back and visit Rebecca. Now, yes. I was going to go back and see her anyway, on or off yeah. camera, mm-hmm. because I just felt a huge connection with her. And actually, quite a lot of the footage that we shot in Parliament for the all-party parliamentary group that I sit on 
all of that hit the cutting room floor because we went back to see Rebecca's. Yes. So that was a massive editorial decision by the director. And it was the right decision. It's very powerful, I think, yeah. going, going back yeah. to see her. But I think there's something about, you know, when you go to a support group or when somebody rings the papyrus line or whatever, you know, there is something about... Yes, I was 12 years into my journey. Rebecca was only five weeks down the road. Um, But there was a connection there that I think you get, whether you're five minutes in Mm. or five years in or whatever, Mm. you know, along this this path, this experience. You, for one, know exactly what she's going through and exactly what she's experiencing. And I suppose for her, if she is thinking straight, which she probably wasn't at that time, but if she is thinking straight, she can look at you and think... Mm. it will be okay I can can get there and that was the important Mm. thing Mm -hmm. that we had both stood in the same shoes Mm -hmm. but actually she was you know she was asking me the same questions Mm -hmm. like David Robb you know Mm -hmm. the the, the guy from Mm -hmm. um, the fabulous actor from down he just sounded so sort of bewildered still didn't he yeah I was meant to meet him on camera and then meet him off camera Mm -hmm. and the meeting off camera never happened because I I had never met David or Rebecca or any Mm -hmm. anybody before you know it's the strength of our joint uh you know that experience that brings us together means that actually you don't have to meet somebody before mm-hmm. because you you know you know you you, you know what you've, you've experienced yeah. the same thing and when I met David um we were meant to actually film the scene and and meet for me to meet David for the first time and you meet him at the you know mm-hmm. as an audience at the same time as I did um and then we were meant to sit down and just have a, a coffee together off camera and just to say hello but actually the minute we sat down David, who had lost his wife, Bryony McRoberts, to, to suicide, um, just turned to me and said, tell, tell me this gets better. And at that point, we just carried on filming because mm. that was the crux of it. Mm. That's what he wanted from yeah. me to tell needed, him wasn't it? Yeah. 12 years down the line mm. that the way that he felt then was not the power and the sorrow that he felt was not always going to be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And I could say, hand on heart, it does get better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great to, to, to be able to say mm-hmm. that um, to him. Mm-hmm. So when you, I think the most moving part of the whole documentary for me was, as I think I've said, when you were talking to your son, Ben, mm. and sort of navigating their grief and navigating Helen, your daughter's, mm utter bewilderment about this person that they didn't know but who had such a massive effect Mm. on everybody else that they knew and loved Mm. um and I think your children seem to have come through this extremely well but I think I mean you touched on it quite a lot in the documentary but how worried you were about them and that doesn't start no I don't think it does every mother has that but yes but there's an added level of worry for for somebody like you doesn't it but you're very open and honest with each other and I think Mm. I mean that must be extremely important. But I, th- to all I think of you. you know, working for Papyrus, you mm-hmm. you guys know that suicide is the biggest killer of men under fifty. That mm-hmm. you know that if if somebody has lost a, a significant person to suicide, if they're bereaved by suicide, then that puts them in a different, a higher risk group as well. Mm-hmm. Now I had, I have two boys. Both are under 50, both are obviously male, Mm. and uh, both of them have lost a very significant person in their life to suicide. Now, I know that that puts my kids in a high-risk group, Mm. and so I suppose the the conversation was, do I tell them that they're in a high-risk group? Mm. You know, what do I do with that But they're not stupid, because they'd they'd find that out themselves, wouldn't they? So, honesty is the best policy, I think, and I think probably with your family and your 
upbringing and your culture, the sitting around and talking, mm. that must have helped. Mm. So that's what you all say, talking helps, doesn't it? Did, it did, and it's changed massively over time. We've had to manage it in different ways at different times. So when my children, who are now 10 and 11, realised what had happened and that Mark had taken his own life, I then had to have a conversation with Angela's mm. boys to say, look, the kids know they might ask you about it, which was obviously fine, but it's kind of all the bits that you don't think of. You know, it, it's um, they they wanted to know how old he was, and you know where the photographs of him. And um, for Benjamin and Alexi, in the main part, they are okay, but obviously they're still, mm-hmm. you know, they they've mm-hmm. still lost their dad. Yeah. Whereas so, your girls are trying to paint a picture of what yeah. this person was. With. Yeah. Yeah, and some of those questions, however innocently asked, yeah. must have been particularly upsetting because then they would have to go stop and think, I suppose. Well, Benjamin, um, Benjamin's questions have changed over time, haven't mm. they? And what we have to be aware of, you, you know, you said honesty is the best policy. We have to be really mindful that because we're really close, Benjamin would quite often ask me the same question that he'd ask my mom <laughs> and that he'd ask Sandra, yeah. just because he's, you know, he was little. Yeah. Um, so it was just. Yeah. You know, it was really important that he was told the truth Mm -hmm. in an age-appropriate way, Mm -hmm. and quite often it was. As with my girls, you know, well, what happens after you you die? Mm -hmm. Where do you go? And what are we having for our tea? Kind of, you know, in that order. (laughs) So it was kind of, yeah. 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 And they're young men now, aren't they? So there are different questions that they'll want answered Mm -hmm. about their dad, Mm -hmm. about what he liked doing, you know, what he liked wearing and stuff like that that wouldn't have occurred to Mm -hmm. them as young children. Alexi and Ben are 19 and 30 next week. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe I'm saying I've got a a 30-year-old. And things have changed because they've changed and because now they have a different conversation with each other. So, first of all, now they can go and have a glass of wine together, Mm -hmm. which... Does fuel the conversation. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so again, their their conversations with each other. You know, they're they're two men now, and mm-hmm. and they they have different conversations. But I think, you know, if they ever have questions, sometimes, you know. It's your mum isn't, isn't always the person to go to, no, so no. my boys will still go to Helen as their mm. auntie mm. and ask her questions. Sometimes they don't want to ask me because it's no. like, oh, mum might get upset. Or the other thing is, mum might not tell us the exact truth. She, she, you know, I think one of the comments was she sugarcoats yes. everything. She tries um, to protect us <laughs> because yeah. we're all so busy. I think we, we're all guilty of it. You know, we're all so busy trying to protect each other that sometimes the difficult questions, you don't go direct to your mum. You know, sometimes you go to your auntie or, so, or, your, or your uncle or whoever else to, to get that. And that they've got each take. other as well. So and they've got each other now. They've yeah. got each other. But, yeah, absolutely. But for Alexi, who lost his dad when he was 13, his questions were completely different because mm. he, you know, he wanted to know why someone who had such a massive impact mm-hmm. on on his life because they were really close had died mm-hmm. and Benjamin sometimes asks why someone he didn't know for very long because it was mm-hmm. only three has had such a massive impact on his life so mm-hmm. it, it you know it's yeah. it's mm-hmm. it's something that they're figuring out between us yeah. and I think 
you know, we've we've mentioned before about our love of kind of baking and mm-hmm. preparing food and this kitchen's usually a really busy kitchen on a Sunday. And everybody does a little bit, you know, the my my girls will set the table, um our other halves will be kind of helping to prepare food. My Wash dishes. Usually get yeah, giving mum's usually giving us instructions. Yeah, but your girls can so also bake a cake from my scratch. My girls can also bake a cake. Um, <laughs> but actually from scratch, like you know, not not adding an egg to a packet here. This is like weighing everything. This well, is like no, we've passed down, isn't it? But but I think the thing is, and and the lovely thing about that is that actually there's been some really important conversations that have happened when we've either been baking a cake or preparing Doing food else. because yeah. actually you're not sitting staring into each other's mm. eyes. You know, these conversations kind of become That's very part, true. Of, yeah. part of part yeah. um, of part of how you have a yeah. conversation with a teenage yeah. boy who's finding my, it difficult yeah. to look up yeah. you know <laughs> difficult conversations with my teenage boys normally took place in the car because we're both right. driving yeah. I'm yeah. driving and he's sitting next but to me but it is that shoulder yeah. to shoulder yeah. thing isn't it like we have not amazing conversations when we're washing the dishes or yeah. you know it is that shoulder to shoulder thing isn't it and and um, but the fact that you're having those conversations is yeah. really the the most important thing Absolutely. and has been for the boys as well Absolutely. and your girls it yeah. is and we you know whenever we sit down all together it's something that we've taken for granted, but my mum will always ask us all if we've got any news. Has anyone got any news? And yeah. sometimes that will be um, my girls moving up a band on their, you know, mm-hmm. in their reading in school. Sometimes it'll be, you know, one of us got something to do with work coming up. Some Sometimes someone's finding something a bit tricky. And we've got into the habit of, of starting off mm-hmm. our, our chats around the table like that. That's really amazing. It must be quite noisy in this house most of the time, I would it think. It is really <laughs> noisy, yeah. yeah so, um, <clears throat> as well as all the work on the documentary and um, all your, your, the other work that you do in your other art life and everything else, you've also advised Hollyoaks on the Scott Drinkwell story regarding yeah. his suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. So what role do you think soaps and TV dramas can have in raising awareness around mm-hmm. suicide? Do you think you're doing it, they're doing it properly? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know... When should they stop? What limits should they stop at? And you know, soap operas have always been amazing because they have always echoed real life in a dramatic, theatrical, sometimes funny, sometimes very serious way. And I think the best, you know, we love soap operas because we've watched, you know, children in soap operas kind of grow up and go through their kind of rites of passage and all of that. Yeah. And I think um, when I was first asked to, to, to look at Hollyoaks, it was Scott, um, Scott's storyline. Um, and I was I remember being in a hotel in Cork. I was speaking at a conference and they phoned me and said, could you watch these episodes and give us your feedback? So I sat in a hotel and I watched two hours of Hollyoaks and <laughs> I was blown away, you know. I'd, I um, thought the way that they had done it was absolutely spot on. Mm-hmm. And... I think people can get a bit sniffy about soap operas and mm. the themes that they cover, but to my mind, I'm not really sure how else you reach a million mm. teenagers an episode or mm. how you get groups of students who all watch it together or people who watch it with their parents or whatever. I'm not really sure how you get those messages across. Uh, I, I wrote a piece for the Huffington Post after I worked on, on that because I was so delighted to see the way that they had covered it mm. in a in a... In a in a, in a way that kind of really encouraged people to think about 
you know, how vulnerable somebody can feel, for instance, the 24 hours after they make an attempt on their life. Mm-hmm. You know, this wasn't easy stuff no. here. They, and they've been they, very well researched then. And the too. research yeah. is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Now that I've, I've been working with them for about four years or off and on mm-hmm. now, and the research and the lengths they go to to spend time with people who... You know, when they're doing a self-harm storyline, for instance, they will go and they will spend time with people who um, have self-harmed. They will talk to them about their experience. They will talk to them about what's helped or what hasn't helped. Mm. Um, They'll talk to them about language that people use. And so the actors, the writers, um, even the production crew sometimes have really tried to access lived experience, which Mm. I suppose is kind of where I came in really. Mm. Um, using that lived experience in a way that can benefit, benefit it's fantastic others. learning for all of all the people involved in the production as well then to have all that wealth of knowledge and research and everything yeah else because you know that's the thing sometimes mm-hmm. we forget yes there are all the people in front of the camera mm-hmm. but there are so many people behind mm-hmm. it um you know the script writers mm-hmm. are so um really driven to get this stuff right and, and really to invested in it, oh hugely mm-hmm. invested in it responsibility i think yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and and I, I think the the um the head of hollyoaks um brian kirkwood is really really invested in hollyoaks covering mm-hmm. uh you know mental health storylines mm-hmm. and and storylines around these these big things that we're all mm-hmm. you know big themes that we're all dealing with at the moment uh, and i think um I was so pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. at the amount of research that mm-hmm. they do. Oh, that's very good to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To hear. So um, this brings me on to the final question of this hope cast, which, mm. funnily enough, is what gives each of you hope? I think, I think what gives me hope, it's such a hard question, can I just say, mm. you've chosen like, <laughs> the hardest question to... to uh, you see, the th- hardest question used to be, how do you take care of yourself? Right. And actually, now I can say I bake sourdough. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you take that right. so, okay. <laughs> um, Do you know what gives me hope? When, when you lose someone in such awful, terrible, unforeseen circumstances, what I've realised is it allows you to see... The, sometimes the very worst of people, mm-hmm. um, their reactions, you know, people who've crossed the road from me, mm-hmm. people who have um, not liked it when I haven't followed their advice. But actually what it also does is it gives you the opportunity to see the very best of people. Mm-hmm. I have had conversations at bus stops with strangers who've asked me or recognised mm-hmm. me from the, from the programme or whatever. I have had the most brilliant tweets from strangers mm-hmm. who've just given you that little bit of encouragement um and i think for me that's what gives me hope is is the change that we're seeing publicly mm-hmm. at the moment in the conversation around suicide but also yeah that that people just altruistically just talking mm-hmm. to you and sharing their experiences mm-hmm. with you um has really allowed me to see the best of people mm-hmm. That's wonderful, thank you. What gives you hope, Helen? Again, it's opening up the conversation. It's our kind of using our lived experience to support other people and to have that conversation that maybe wouldn't have happened before mm-hmm. and wasn't okay to have before. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but it must have given you an amazing... Like when you, when you work on, on, on 
you know areas with papyrus you Mm. must have the most amazing conversations when somebody comes to you that needs support and you can do that from the actually you know you can feel it because you've been there you know well we do and it's all about that connection again Mm. except sometimes people don't realize Mm. what the connection is because Mm. what what being bereaved by suicide does is it gives you a thinner skin and we've talked about yeah, that before haven't we? that people assume that it gives you a thicker skin when you've been through mm. such a lot and come mm. through the other side it doesn't it gives you a thinner skin but what what having a thinner skin gives you is that kind of insight into somebody else's world and how they might be struggling at the moment mm. so that kind of gives me hope just being able to have that yes. that open and honest conversation mm. with people and, and providing that support. That's wonderful, thank you. Okay, thank you. There's so much cake to eat. <laughs> there is so much cake to eat. And there's a whole loaf to eat as well. Thank you for listening and for your support in making suicide part of the conversation. It can be hard to listen to these stories and if you're a young person who's been affected by any of the things discussed in this podcast and you're experiencing thoughts of suicide, please contact Helpline UK on 0800 068 4141. Or you can email pat at papyrus-uk.org.